Welcome to the Talks at Google podcast, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this week's episode with Professor Sophie Scott, a professor of cognitive neuroscience and a speech communication leader. Talks at Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Professor Sophie Scott offers a neurological and psychological point of view on the often surprising science and evolution of laughter and its role in social interactions and emotional management. She talks about why we laugh, the impact of laughing on individual well-being, and her work on what makes jokes funny. Her research investigates the cognitive neuroscience of voices, speech, and laughter, particularly speech perception, speech production, vocal emotions, and human communication. She is known for her public engagement work, including performing stand-up comedy. Combining this with her academic study of the science of laughter, Professor Scott has a uniquely insightful view as to what makes people laugh. Now here is Professor Sophie Scott, Why Laughter is Funny. I'm Sophie Scott and I'm from University College London. Thank you very much for coming to my talk on laughter and I'm going to switch over to that now. So my talk today is going to go through 10 reasons why laughter is funny and uh, there may be different senses of the word funny as we go through. First of all, and probably the most noticeable aspect of why laughter is funny is that when we laugh, we can end up making some genuinely peculiar noises. And these are just examples of real laughs that I've taken from a, a video on YouTube called Skype Laughter Chain. Uh, it starts with what sounds recognizably like a human laughing. <laughs> we can hear a baby, we can hear an adult man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, things get a little stranger now. <laughs> and uh, this next laugh, I always find a bit concerning because I need him to breathe in a little bit more often than he sounds like he is doing. About now. I need to hear a breath going in. And now I'm just frightened. And finally, this lady says, in French, my God, what is that? And I do kind of know what she means. And there we go. <laughs> now, the main reason why we end up making some very, very peculiar noises when we laugh is that actually laughter is an emotional vocalization. So it's something that we do, it's a noise we make to connote an emotion rather than to speak. And frequently, what happens with those emotional vocalizations is that they can be completely involuntary. So you make them and they feel like they've kind of just been pulled out of you. If you've uh, sort of found yourself screaming in fear, it may have realized you're just making this noise before you knew you were making it. Now, 
That's what happens with laughter. And in fact, we can actually see that in terms of how we make the noises of laughter. So actually laughter is more like an animal call than it is like speech. If we take someone and we put them in our MRI scanner and we film them speaking, so we're just running the scanner like a video camera here, you're just getting a glimpse here of the complexity of what happens when humans start talking. There is no sound on earth as complicated, as complex as the human voice. And you can see here how much the tongue is moving and the lips and the soft palate and the jaw, and all of this is shaping this extraordinary speech signal. As soon as we start laughing, all of that goes away. And what you're seeing here is something much more like how any other mammal would make a sound. So the tongue's just sitting at the bottom of the mouth. The mouth is opening. There's a lot of movement going on, because as we've come to, she's actually making most of the stuff happening with the laughter is happening down at the rib cage. But it's a much more basic way of making a sound. And it can be laughter can be completely helpless. So that's another funny thing about laughter. Sometimes when we start laughing, and you may have noticed this, you may have noticed it because you were in a situation where you should not have been laughing, but sometimes we start laughing and we cannot stop. So it's not just a non-verbal expression of emotion, it's a sort of spontaneous one that you can't necessarily stop from happening at all. Why is that happening? Well, I suppose the short answer is we don't completely know, but we've got some clues. So to think about human voices, and laughter, what we need to do is think a little bit about rib cages, and we don't normally spend a great deal of time in my area of psychology and cognitive neuroscience thinking about the rib cage, but actually the human rib cage is really interesting. You're all using your rib cages right now to stay alive, very important, don't stop. And what you're doing is you're using your rib cage, the muscles between your ribs, the um, the thoracic muscles, the intercostal muscles, you use those to pull the rib cage out and up and that pulls air into the lungs and then you just relax them back down and the air is pushed out. And if I was to put a breath belt on you, so just a little bit of uh, sort of elasticity connected to something that's actually detecting expansions, what you see is this very smooth expansion and contraction, this sort of sinusoidal pattern you're seeing on the left, on the right of the screen. Now, as soon as we start talking, that pattern looks completely different because humans, when they speak, use breath completely differently. And now we take a breath in. And if I take a breath in and start talking, what you find is those same intercostal muscles start to move completely differently. And you can hear if I keep talking without taking another breath, my intercostal muscles start to have to work really, really hard. Because what they're going to do is maintain what's called a constant subtle pressure at the voice box so I can make a sound. Right. Woo. So... You're probably thinking that was quite an odd thing to do, but actually we can only speak at all because we can do this. And we can only do this because we walk upright. We humans have freed up our rib cages from having to support our weight. And it's given us this possibility of using the rib cage to control our breath in this much more complex way. So you can see how different those movements are when I'm talking like that and not taking another breath. Instead of this sinusoidal movement, you're getting this very fine detailed movement that's actually making my voice possible. And although it doesn't feel like it, you have as much fine control over the intercostal muscles as you do over your fingers. That's how precise these movements are. In fact, we can actually use this, the expansion in the spine associated with the, with the the neural control of breath, we can actually use that to date back in the fossil history when humans or modern, you know, precursors to humans started to be able to speak at all. It's very powerful. Now, as soon as we start laughing, something different happens. And when we start laughing, we lose that fine control and we lose metabolic breathing, that smooth movement. So what you get instead, a really big, 
really large deflections of those same muscles. Now they start just doing these very big single pushes. Ha, 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 ha. So you can see this zigzagging. Each of those zigzags of the breath belt is actually showing you one big contraction of the ribcage that's just pushing air out. So laughter really is a very primitive way of making a sound because it's just reflecting these ha, ha, ha sounds are each reflecting one big contraction. Now, one thing that we do not know is why when you start laughing, not always, but sometimes when you start laughing, it will stop you from breathing and it will stop you from talking. It's just squeezing air out of you. It is, in effect, trying to kill you. We don't know why that can happen. We do not know why our motor system can be overwhelmed in this way. But I think it's very interesting to speculate about how and why that could be possible. Because there's a brief period when you're absolutely lost in laughter, when you are helpless with laughter, when you genuinely are helpless. If a tiger was to come in at that point, there'd be very little you could do about it. And so there must be some important evolutionary trade-off there. Sorry, I started that too soon. Now, quite often, when people are talking and they start laughing, you can actually hear this involuntary sound, the laughter, duking it out with all this fine stuff that you do when we're speaking. And the best examples of this are often to be found in broadcasting, because broadcasters, certainly the BBC does not like its broadcasters, start showing emotion in their voices. They get quite cross about it. You are, it's called breaking, and you're not supposed to show this, particularly newsreaders. So this next clip is going to be somebody reading the news on the main programme for the news in the morning on the BBC during the week called the Today programme. And just before she comes on to read the news headlines, she hears something that makes her start to laugh. And listen to what that does to her voice. Singerok's unpopular replacement has now been dismissed, with the Army's popular Chief of Staff, Jack Twat, taking over. A 40-foot sperm whale, which was stranded in the Firth of Forth for more than four days, is now thought to be swimming towards open waters again. It freed itself late last night. Marine experts are hoping to establish this morning whether the whale is finally back at sea. Good luck to the whale. Ten past eight is the time. An investigation is underway. It's amazing. So there's a couple of things that I really like about this. First of all, I don't know how well you know British English or certainly uh, northern British English, but that's where I'm from and where I grew up in the north of England. The word twat is quite a rude word. So the guy who's coming down the line has got to say it and he just goes for it. Popular chief of staff, Jack Twat, and just fronts it out. Back in the studio, just before the news headlines come on, something else happens. And what happens, and you have to listen very carefully to hear this, is someone else in the studio leans forward to Charlotte Green, who's about to start reading the news, and they whisper to her. What they whisper is, Jack Twat. And at first, she's okay. She starts to read the news, and she's talking about the sperm whale in the Firth of Forth, and she's all right. And then you start to see the laughter starts to get her. And the first sign that you get she completely loses control of the pitch of her voice because she's starting to lose control of all that lovely fine intercostal control that normally gives us our voices. And then her voice shoots up in pitch and then she starts making squeaking sounds because now she's completely laughing. And this is the power of laughter. She doesn't want to and she'll get in trouble for it. She reads the news every day for a living. She knows not to do this. But once the laughter's got her, that's it. She's lost. So it can kind of overwhelm us, laughter. Another reason why laughter is funny, because it's a universal communication. Now, 
Within spoken language, one of the things that is very, very well established, although there may be similarities at a sort of structural level, human spoken languages are very, very variable. And very few, there are some, but there are very few sort of linguistic universals that are immediately obvious to us. So it's quite interesting when we get to the world of emotion to say, well, is that true with emotion? Is, is emotion in the voice, say, something that we just learned separately for all cultures? Or is it something where there might be some older evolutionary influences that means some emotional expressions might be shared across all human cultures? Well, there's a lively debate about this. And of course, it's likely a mix of both. Some of it we learn, some of it we perhaps ha is part of our evolutionary heritage. And we were looking at this. In fact, this is one of the first studies that I did with laughter. We, we never set out to look at laughter. I was working with my PhD student, Disa Sota, looking at vocal expressions of emotion. And there's a huge amount of work, really good work, on the recognition of facial expressions of emotion done by people like Paul Ekman and Andy Calder and Andy Young in the UK. And Paul Ekman had established that there were apparently a set of facial expressions of emotion that were recognised cross-culturally. So no matter where you went in the world, even if people had never seen a Caucasian face before, they would be able to recognise, say, an expression of disgust or a happy, smiling face. So we wanted to know if this was true with the voice. And we were also looking at more positive emotions as well as the negative emotions we normally study in cognitive neuroscience. So we had sounds like laughter and cheering sounds in there as well. Of course, what you need to do if you want to know if these are genuinely universally recognised or not, you can't determine that by working in your own culture. You're never going to find an answer that way. So my PhD student, Lisa Sota, did several trips out working in northern Namibia, where she was working with members of the Himba community who have completely no contact with Westerners, they don't have um, electricity, so they're not, they're not kind of being contaminated by our culture through films and TV. And they are a very good test case. If they recognise things that we do with our voices back in London and vice versa, it does suggest or it's evidence for or against there being some kind of older evolutionary history to some of these emotions or whether or not it could all be sort of culturally determined. So um, this is not easy doing cross-cultural work and it's particularly hard taking sound out uh, when you're not necessarily going to be near electricity for a long time um, and this was work that Deese was doing in the early noughties um, however the results were really really interesting and I've just got an example here to show you because what we wanted to know was we asked the Himba community to make expressions of emotion we took back to London to test back in London so we're looking in both directions see if you can work out what emotion is going on here well, first of all, there are two emotions being expressed there. The first one is the one that we asked him to sort of act out for us. And the second one, and you get no prizes for this, was laughter. In fact, if you watch all the videos, what you find is that there's a huge amount of laughter going on a lot of the time. He's, his friends are laughing and he starts laughing as well because he's doing this silly thing. The emotion that he was expressing at the top was, in fact, triumph. Now, that's an example of an emotion that's not meaningless to him. If you suggest a scenario in which he's celebrating something, that makes absolute sense to a member of the Himba community. It's not a culture, not an emotion that's so culture specific, it is meaningless to another culture. However, the expression is not recognised back in the UK as sounding celebratory. And similarly, the Himba, when they hear British people making celebratory noises like, woohoo, which I think we got from The Simpsons. They don't hear that as sounding celebratory. So what you have there is a very good example of an emotion that is not universal, that is a culturally determined emotion. In contrast, 
this is across all the emotions that we tested. So what we did was we were replicated the work that Paul Ekman had done with the face, with the voice, and found that anger, disgust, fear, sadness, and surprise sounds are cross-culturally recognized. So if you're in the middle of the Namibian desert and you get vomit on your hand and you go, Ugh, somebody from the Himba community is likely to recognize what that emotion means. The emotions that we added in, these more positive emotions like triumph and pleasure and relief and laughter, the only emotion that we can now add to these emotions that have been worked on with the face that looks strongly like it has been cross-culturally recognized is the laughter. There's something funny going on with the relief and I'm happy to take questions on, on Twitter about that. So this looks like actually probably laughter is a good candidate. We've got a good starting point for thinking that at least at its base recognition, it may be used culturally in different ways, but the recognition of laughter and the basic meaning of laughter may have some similarity across human communities. And of course that would make sense because another funny thing about laughter is we are not the only animal that laughs. Many people over throughout history have thought that only humans would laugh. For, exa for example, Nietzsche thought that only, only man would laugh because only man could have experienced despair and awfulness that meant that laughter was a way of reacting to that. Turns out not to be true. Now, it's got a very interesting background to it, this story, because half the story is we had never really looked for it scientifically. We, we don't do very much science on laughter full stop, and there just is not very much work on other, other, other animals. And actually, some of the work on apes has, it turns out, like people had always known that they laughed. It's just that no one ever bothered to write it down as a scientific paper. So we have laughter in humans. And interestingly, the first time that you see laughter emerging in humans tend to be quite early in infancy, around two to three months old, and it's strongly associated with social contact. So tickling or playing peekaboo is what gets a baby laughing. Really interestingly, both of those things, tickling and peekaboo, they are only work if there's someone else there. You can't play peekaboo with a TV screen. You can't tickle yourself. So from the outset, laughter in human babies is highly social, and that seems to be its initial role. It's a bonding mechanism between the parents and the baby. But in an extraordinary way, it's exactly the same for other apes. So tickling, interestingly, not peekaboo, but tickling makes other apes laugh. And again, it's first seen in interactions between juveniles and infants and adults. I particularly like the look on the adult face, like, I'm going to get you, or you're going to have a tickle over there. So it's easy with the chimpanzees and the orangutans and the gorillas because it looks and sounds like laughter. Is there any other laughter out there? Well, some really beautiful work from the US by Yang Pangsep, who worked with rats, argued that perhaps it is. And what they noticed was the rats, who they were studying to look at their distress vocalizations, they noticed the rats made a completely different sound when they were playing. So they started tickling the rats, and the rats make the same sound when they're tickled. And that could all still be the rat going, stop it, I don't like it. So what they would do is they would get tickle the rat and then take their hand away, and the rat will make the squeaking sound to try and get you to tickle them again. Now, it's not a sound that humans can normally hear. It's actually something that we have to reduce the sound in pitch to be able to be aware of, but it seems to be a very important signifier for rats of sort of playful, joyful behavior. It, rats will do it. If the same scientist tickles the same rat every day, they make that sound when you come into the lab in the morning and people, people are not normally that pleased to see scientists in the morning, so we like that kind of story. So I think what this suggests is, it's at least possible there's more laughter out there. We've got it in apes, of course we're apes, but if it's there in rats, maybe there really are more examples of it. And another reason why I think there may well be other animals' laughter out there, oh sorry, 
this is you may think well what does it look like what does it sound like I don't have a very clean recording of this but this is a video of the late comedian Robin Williams meeting the uh, late Gorilla Coco who was signing Gorilla she could she, she signed some ASL um, and what I want you just to notice here is it takes him a while it's hard to tickle a gorilla. You've really got to get in there to tickle a gorilla. But when he manages the tickling, and she does ask him to tickle her, she signs tickle really humorously as well. It's like, tickle me. He starts tickling her. And when he really manages it, you'll start to see a very recognisable pattern of behaviour. She's also very keen to find out what's going on in his T-shirt. So she keeps trying to investigate his nipples. So he's trying and it's not working yet. So she's a bit bored and having a bit of a route around there. And... And it gets in there, and it's difficult, as I say, it's hard to tickle a gorilla. Their skin is thick. Look at her face now, and look at her movements. So you start to see a very, very recognisable pattern of behaviours. Okay. And in the end, I think she gets the T-shirt off altogether. So it has this strong link, physical link to tickling across wherever you find laughter for humans, for other apes, for rats. And it's always strongly associated with play. In fact, Pangsep, who did the work with rats, said at its heart, laughter is it's an invitation to play. And of course, play really matters to mammals. So that's why I think there may be more laughter out there. So all mammals play when they're juveniles. And because play is an important in a complex behavior, it, can be, it varies a lot from animal to animal, from species to species. You need to show that you're playing. So you tend to get what's called play face, so these very loose, open, unthreatening mouths. Um, you also get in dogs who, like humans and otters and a handful of other animals, play their whole lives. You get this thing called the play bow. And what that, that, when dogs do that, it means everything after this is a game. I might growl, but I am not cross with you because we are having a game. So Panksepp says that laughter is absolutely intrinsic to this. And interestingly, research from the US with rats that have been devocalized shows that rats who cannot laugh because they can't make any sounds, are more likely to get bitten during play. So if you can't make a laughter sound, it's harder for you to show that you are playing, would be the argument. And of course, we have the same things in humans and other apes. So just to show the similarity, it's very hard to get photographs of human adults with play face. They tend to seize up into a more social smile. Um, so I just need you to notice how very similar my brother looks to that chimpanzee. Okay, you've got that. You'll see the same behaviour in humans. So you've got this thing that's starting as a social bonding phenomenon and then becomes integral to play and becomes this kind of invitation to play. And it can be even more complex than that. So another reason why laughter is funny is that we can just catch laughter sometimes simply because other people are laughing. Laughter can be a purely contagious behaviour. Again, this is an early study that we did with laughter, and we never set out to, to study laughter. So this was just one of the studies where laughter kind of started to get away from us. Most of the work that I do is very, very boring work on speech perception and production. And most of it is done with brain imaging techniques. And we've done lots of studies on, uh, on, on looking at how the brain processes speech. And I've been doing all this work with nonverbal expressions of emotion. And we thought, well, why don't we just have a look, see what that looks like on the brain? And my colleague, Jane Warren, noticed that when people heard emotional vocalizations, and we deliberately chose two positive ones and two negative ones. So we had sounds of laughter, sounds of triumph, those kind of cheering sounds, and then negative sounds, we chose fear and disgust. And we chose those because chose the positive ones are really positive. People find the laughter and the cheering sounds to sound really like happy sounds. 
Whereas the two negative conditions, the fear and the disgust, are extremely, extremely negative, and they are all very well recognised. People do not confuse them with each other. So that's why we started with those. We started the study, and my colleague Jane Warren noticed that one of the interesting things that was varying across the different emotional conditions was we were getting loads and loads of activation in what are called orofacial mirror regions. Now, those are brain areas that are, in, are activated when you move your face. You move your face to speak, perhaps, or you move your face to pull an emotional expression. And we thought, that's, that's quite interesting. So, in fact, we stopped the study and we started it all over again, and we included a motor localizer. So in addition to having people listen to the sounds, we also had people moving their face into different into smiling faces. And what that let us do was identify brain regions that are activated both when you hear emotional vocalizations and when you move your face into a smile. And that's what you're seeing up here in the green. In fact, that's actually a measure of the variance across the emotional conditions. And what that variance unpacks into is that there's a very strong effect of how positive and how arousing the sounds are that's driving this. So it's not equivalent across all the emotional vocalizations. It's driven by the more positive sounds and it's driven by the more arousing sounds. And what that gives you is activation to the cheering and lots and lots of activation to the laughter. And we thought that's quite interesting. That looks like you're getting primed to join in with the laughter, even though you're having your brain scanned in a way that you don't. If you hear someone going, Ugh which is emotionally very contagious, but it's not behaviorally contagious because laughter is very behaviorally contagious. A scientist in the US who sadly passed away last year, Robert Provine, has done a lot of work on contagious behaviors. And one of the things he pointed out is things like laughter, yawning, blinking, scratching, they're highly behaviorally contagious and they're very, very socially modulated. So you're much more likely to catch a yawn or a laugh from someone you know than someone you don't know. Here we've got an example of contagious laughter in action. This is, again, two people, two men, trying to do a live broadcast from the BBC where they are summarising a day's cricket. Brace yourselves for the exciting... He knew exactly what was going to happen. He Listen tried to step over the stumps joke. and just flicked the bail with his, with his right he hand. He wanted to try to do the splits over it, and unfortunately uh, the inner part of his side must have just removed the bail. He just, just didn't quite get his leg over. Anyhow, Terrible he, joke. He did very well indeed. Ryan Johnson is speaking. You can see he's been falls. affected by the joke. And, um, and then we had Lewis playing extremely and well. And then he made the joke. He's not out. Agus, do stop it. So he's, uh, he's asking you to stop laughing. He was joined by De Freitas, who um, was in for 40 minutes, a useful little partnership there. Uh, they put on 35 in 40 minutes, and then he was caught by Dujard Walsh. Now, a bit like before with Charlotte Green, he takes a breath, the man speaking, Brian Johnson. He starts to speak again. And now the laughter has got him. So start to see what this does to his voice. He's speaking with a normal male register, so he's got a low pitch voice. It starts to shoot up in pitch. You get all these strange whistles. Um, and Lawrence, speech. always entertaining. Ready for 30, 35. Whistle. 35 minutes in a fall over the week, keepers. And we lost him. Agus, for goodness sake, stop it. So, Agus, you made the joke, tries to speak. <laughs> Yes, Lawrence. Lawrence. Completely fails. Well. Totally fails. Brian Johnson has to come back. <laughs> it's a four of the week he was in. And he was out for the eye. Tough looking. And for 12 minutes. Then was caught by Haynes on pass number two. And there were 54 extras. And he got all out for 419. I've stopped laughing now. 
So again, that's a really beautiful example of the power of laughter. They don't want to do this. They'll get in trouble. And they did get in a lot of trouble um, from the BBC, who were furious that you'd be so unprofessional as to laugh during a broadcast about cricket. Um, but there's two really interesting things about that. First of all, you can really see the sort of natural lifespan of the laughter. You're seeing him get in touch, sort of get back in control over the pitch of his voice. And he says, I've stopped laughing. You can actually see him getting the pitch of his voice back down. And also how high the pitch of his voice goes when he's absolutely in the grip of the laughter. So again, those sort of completely powerful involuntary forces squeezing the laughter out of you. The other thing that's really striking is that almost immediately they are not laughing because there's anything funny going on. It was a terrible joke. It's not a very funny joke. Almost immediately they're only laughing because they're both there and they're both laughing. The laughter just becomes contagious. It's why he keeps saying, stop it, oh, stop it, Aggers. What he means is if you stop, I'll stop. And I think the other thing that's striking now is the BBC will play this clip at the drop of a hat nowadays. And I think that's because... We kind of know this, and the science shows this. You're much more likely to get into this kind of contagious cycle of laughter with someone you know than someone you don't know. And I think now what we're hearing at the distance of all, like 30 years is if those two men had detested each other, they would not be laughing like that. What you're hearing is really a sign of friendship. And this takes us on to point number six about why laughter is funny. Most of the time, laughter is nothing whatsoever to do with jokes. And for this, we have to be very grateful to Robert Provine again. So what Robert Provine showed was if you ask people about laughter, when do you laugh? They'll always talk about comedy and jokes and humour. But if you look at people, what they do for laughter when they laugh is when they're with other people. Provine showed that you are 30 times more likely to laugh if there is somebody else with you and if you are on your own. And what this means in practice is that most laughter happens in conversational speech. It's kind of seeded throughout the conversation. And we all laugh more than we think we do. There are not many studies on this, but what studies there are show that if you ask people how often they laugh and then you look at how often they laugh, there's almost no relationship except everybody laughs more than they think they do. And it's a huge amount. So we did a study with friends where we found that 10% of the time when friends are talking to each other, on average, they're just laughing together. It's an extraordinary amount of time. So it's strongly modulated by how you know other people, how your relationship with other people. Laughter is always a sign, really, of the context, the social and emotional context that you're in. You will not laugh with people you don't like. You will not laugh with people that you don't feel deserve your laughter. So in conversational speech, we laugh sometimes because other people are laughing. It can just be contagious. We're laughing to make and maintain social bonds, and it's a very efficient way of doing that. We can also do quite complicated things. So we will use laughter to show that we agree with what someone's saying, or we understand what they're saying, we remember, we recognise what they're saying. And what Provine also showed was that at any one time, the person who laughs most in a conversation is the person who's talking. So we're actively using the laughter to try and get people to show us that they agree, that they understand, that they remember, that they recognise. It's communicative. And we will laugh to reframe things as play. I'm going to come back to this at the end. But it's actually a very, very common use of laughter. Remember this idea that uh, Panksket had that you, you do at his heart, laughter is his invitation to play. So people will laugh, perhaps in difficult or embarrassing situations, to show that they're fine. And that can be very powerful. Of course, it can also be completely ambiguous. It, you know, over the Me Too stories that were coming out, several women um, in the Fox News stories said that when they were propositioned, their reaction was to laugh. And of course, that might be them saying, well, I'm going to give you an out here. I'm laughing because I know you don't really mean that. But he can turn around and say, well, she's laughing. It's all fine. 
So it's like the natural home for laughter is these social interactions. And within that, this laughter can be very, very complex. So sometimes we really are laughing helplessly. And you can probably think of times when you were with your friends, when you've just been laughing to absolutely helpless. But a lot of that conversational laughter is more communicative. Remember, I said the person who laughs most at any one time is the person who's talking. And that brings us to our next point. So this communicative laughter and it can be very, very complex in terms of what it means because people will use it in complex ways. They will use it to show they agree. They'll also use it to try and maybe get someone to like them or to cover up an emotion. <laughs> so <laughs> what we did, I'm impressed laughing too soon there. And you'll notice I find my own laughter highly contagious. We tried to pull this apart. So what we did is we collected sets of laughter and we got people either laughing absolutely helplessly, so spontaneous laughter, that stuff you can't stop, or we got the same people to laugh as if they were having a conversation. And so we didn't want nasty laughter. We didn't want people going, ha, ha, ha. So we say, oh, you know, imagine your friend's told a joke and you're laughing because you like your friend. So listen to this laugh. This is a spontaneous laugh. So this is me laughing absolutely helplessly. <laughs> and this is a laugh of a dear friend of mine who is laughing in a more communicative way. <laughs> And what you tend to find is there are big differences. The spontaneous laughs are longer and they're higher in pitch. The communicative laughs, they've also got their own thing going wrong. Can you hear that one was really nasal? <laughs> Actually, what we find, certainly for our British collection of laughs, is that these communicative laughs often are quite nasal. People are sort of showing, I'm, I'm giving you my laughter. Most of the laughter you encounter out and about during the day is not people screaming with laughter in a helpless way. This sort of social bonding laughter, this communicative laughter, is more in this kind of, you know, well, it's communicative. You're choosing at some level to do it. So it looks like we're actually marking it. And, of course, that's quite complex. How do you ever learn to make that distinction? Well, one way that we do know is your brain really does care. So we put people back into the brain scanner, and we didn't tell them it was a study of laughter, and we didn't tell them it was a study of spontaneous emotions or more com you know, communicative emotions, more posed emotions, if you like, and what we found is it doesn't matter. Your brain tells the difference. So when you hear a laugh, you are trying to work out what it means. And what you see here in blue are brain regions in auditory areas, which are significantly more activated when you hear the spontaneous laughter, possibly because it's completely unambiguous, possibly because you hear sounds you don't hear in any other context. I was worried in this study that we'd get a lot less activation for the posed the communicative laughter. But in fact, that's not what we found. In fact, if anything, we get more activation to that. And it's running forward in these pink areas out of auditory parts of the brain into medial prefrontal fields and dorsolateral sort of dorsomedial thalamic fields. People aren't doing anything, they're just listening to laughter. But when you hear someone laughing in a way that is at some level intentional, ha 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 ha, you're trying to work out why. You are trying to work out what's going on here. These are brain areas associated with mentalizing, with thinking about what somebody else is thinking. And what we think is actually going on here is laughter is never neutral. When you hear someone laughing and it's spontaneous, helpless laughter, okay, I know what that means. But if you hear somebody clearly laughing in this more intentional way, ha, 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 maybe they're laughing, try and get someone to like them. Maybe they're laughing to pretend they like someone. Maybe they're trying to laugh to carry, cover over a lie, to cover over being embarrassed, to cover over being in pain, to cover over being sad or angry. It's like a hall of mirrors, the interpretations you can put onto laughter. It could all be there. All you know for sure is that they are at some level laughing intentionally. We're always trying to work it out. Laughter is never neutral. Interestingly, that priming effect that I showed you before for laughter, that's still there, but here it's for any laugh. And what we found 
was there was variation across people. So we tested people out of the scanner, and what we found was the better people were at discriminating the two kinds of laugh, the more they had recruited this priming response in orofacial mirror regions when they were listening to any laughter. So it's not just contagion. When you hear someone laughing and you're primed to join in, you actually understand what that laughter means better. Another reason why laughter is funny is because we learn to laugh. All the stuff I've just talked about pretty much is stuff we learn to do. So this is a very big cohort of people that we tested at the Science Museum in London. And we had people from the age of three up to the age of sort of 90. And we were asking them to rate laughter. Is it authentic or not? So is it real or posed? Is it spontaneous or communicative? Just to distinguish this two kinds of laugh. And we've got the two different kinds of laughs in there. If you ask that question of a child, they do not know what you mean. Children hear laughter. And I suspect, actually, when babies and young children laugh, it's always spontaneous. They're never doing it intentionally. They are. It's completely genuine. And they have no idea what you're talking about. So they're just a chance. As we get older, the line in blue that you can see, that's people improving with age, well, across the cohort, at recognising that real spontaneous laughter. So you can see by the time people are at the oh, you know, late teens, they've got pretty good at that. Whereas the curve for accurately rating the more communicative, the pose, the intentional laughter, actually is more shallow. And this is just a very crude way of showing it, but if I just draw a line on there where you seem to hit peak performance, that's coming for the spontaneous laughter, as I say, in your late teens, early 20s. That's when your brain's fully matured. That's when most things are at their best. This line for this sort of communicative laughter is carrying on improving until people are in their late 30s. And I think that's because this communicative, this intentional, this non-spontaneous use of laughter is a social skill that we learn. You learn what that means. And the only way of learning it is in social interactions and you're learning it throughout your entire early adult life. There are other skills that have this kind of trajectory and they're things like empathy and social skills, theory of mind, being able to work out what somebody else is thinking about. So I think what we're seeing here is that this kind of communicative, intentional use of laughter, we need to think of that much more as a social skill than as something that's just like a baseline accuracy-based decoding of what laughter means. And you have to learn it as it's a social skill in social settings. No one can teach you. No one can tell you. But of course, things are going to influence that. So we did a study with boys at risk of psychopathy, and we're comparing them to boys who are typically developing boys. And here, they, those boys were, they're all still on a journey of learning what laughter means. So they didn't come out as different in terms of their ratings of laughter as real or posed. When we asked the question about contagion, and we learn contagious behaviours, we learn to laugh contagiously, to yawn contagiously, to scratch contagiously. Those are not things we're born knowing about. What you find is the boys who are at risk of psychopathy rate the laughter as being less contagious and their brain response shows a decreased response in these orofacial mirror regions and other regions that are associated with recognising laughter. So they are not showing the same response. They're not showing this priming response to laughter. And if you think about what that means, of course, it doesn't tell us why, but it tells us either because of the experiences these boys have had where they have not had laughter to learn from or because the problems that they have because of their psychological profile, because they are at risk of psychopathy, they are poorly, they, they behave in a, in a conduct disordered way and they tend to be, uh, the phrases, they're high in callous and uncaring traits, so they don't really care, they do bad things, they don't care if they hurt people. So have they, 
are they not knowing about or not finding laughter as priming because they haven't had a chance to learn that or because there's something different about them that makes it hard for them to learn it? We don't know that. We don't know the direction of causality. But one thing this does tell us, as you would suspect, is that the experiences you have with laughter growing up have big impacts on how you understand the use of laughter as an adult. Very quickly, another reason why laughter is funny is because it makes things funnier. So my PhD student, Ceci, um, wanted to test laughter and she wanted, instead of asking people, what do you think of this laughter? She wanted an implicit test of laughter. So what she did was she got a comedian, Ben Vanderveld, to record some really terrible jokes, absolutely awful jokes, things like this. What is the best day to cook? Friday. <laughs> and then she added laughs onto the end of them. And what we find is if you give people the jokes without the laughter, you can see these are the lines in blue. And these are individual jokes because they vary a lot in how funny people think they are. What you find, and this is the red, sorry, the red is the baseline. People will agree. Most of, they're not finding any of the jokes that funny. But as soon as you add on any laughter, and that's shown in the green and the blue, it makes the jokes funnier. Different people rate those jokes as funnier simply because there's laughter there. And the more spontaneous the laughter, the funnier it makes the joke. And we think that's very interesting. We think even though people don't have any, we don't, they, we don't, they've got no illusions. They don't think the laughter has anything to do with the joke. It's just adjacent to the joke. And it's like the laughter is sticky. It attracts other things to it. And it makes the joke seem funnier, possibly through these kind of social mechanisms. Well, it sounds like someone liked that joke. Maybe it is funnier than I thought. And of course, this is probably why throughout broadcast history, when people have wanted to indicate that what you're listening to is funny, they use things like live studio audience laughter to indicate that this is funny. Nowadays, not all comedy does this. There's a whole genres of comedy that don't signal the joke in that way. But what we're finding is, well, certainly for these sorts of terrible jokes, they are considered to be funnier if the laughter's there. And it's funny to think of that in live comedy situations. I think I've found one comedian in the UK who did a demonstration, recorded their live stand-up set without an audience. They almost Everybody else always has an audience there. And as one comedian said, if I hear the audience laughing, I become funnier. So it becomes a complete feedback loop. And finally, why is laughter funny? Reason number 10. Well, it kind of goes back to this reframing laughter as way that we can use laughter to reframe things as play. Because we can use laughter to make things okay. We can use laughter to make things better, deal with difficult situations. And there's really lovely work coming out of Robert Levinson's lab, for example, when this is a longitudinal study in San Francisco where he's working with married couples. And, you know, over the decades, he's been getting people into the lab and he puts them in stressful situations and he measures their physiological responses. And what you find is that when you put the couple in a stressful situation and the stressful situation is tell me something that your partner does that irritates you, just run that one through your head for a second, you can see physiologically they both become stressed. What he then finds is the couples who use what he calls positive affect, but it includes things like smiling and laughter, they both start to feel better. You see them become less stressed, but they're also the couples who stay together for longer and are more satisfied in their relationship. But it's not just because laughter is like a bit of magic dust that makes everything okay, because it only works if both members of the couple laugh. If one person's going, ha, 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 I do snore very loudly, don't I? And the first person's going, it's a massive problem and I wish you'd stop. No one feels better. And statistically, they are less likely to stay together and they both stay stressed. So there's something about 
actually being able to use laughter to negotiate a better mood that I think is an index of the relationship. It's not that the laughter makes the relationship stronger. It's that the strong relationship can use laughter to negotiate a mood and improve the mood in that way. And I don't think that's limited to romantic relationships. I think this is something that is probably, for example, what we mean when we talk about friendship. So um, there's this lovely quote about laughter, uh, that laughter is the shortest distance between two people. But I think it's even more than that. We actually can use it when we're with other people to make things work better. And I don't have a video of um, elderly couples making each other laugh, but I've got a video from another YouTube clip of a video that goes wrong. And what I want you to do is watch this video and look out for what happens to the emotional tone about halfway through when they, what they expect to happen doesn't happen. So initially, this, this they're making a promotional video for their heavy metal band. And um, you can see he looks cold. He's wearing swimming trunks. He's got a towel. He's expecting to get wet. I've edited out, but I'm swearing in English inexplicably. It's cold. There's ice. Ice here, überall. He looks apprehensive. Yeah, überall rein. Okay. And then when he starts, he's a little kind of bicep. Hey, off. Do this. Yeah. We're off. And my new band is called Cisco. Oh. Oh. And his friends <laughs> And now he starts to go. Oh. Oh. He's completely in the best place. You can't actually use the start of this guy. He's moving his wheel to the floor. So everyone is being hey, <laughs> So one of the things that I really like about working in laughter is people quite often send me videos and say, well, here's a great example of some laughter. And people have sent me this a few times saying, well, it's schadenfreude. You know, we laugh because he gets hurt and it's a bit funny. But actually, it's much more complex than that. Initially, the mood is quite apprehensive. And um, there's quite sort of, there's a little bit of anxiety, a little bit, oh, is this, you know, is this going to work? What will it be like? But no one, no one is laughing. And then as soon as what they expect to happen, him going through the ice doesn't happen, but also he, there isn't blood and bone everywhere. His friends start laughing. And after a couple of beats, it pulls him in. And instead of being angry, like stop filming me or embarrassed, oh God, this has all gone wrong. The invitation to play works and he starts laughing because now this is hilarious. This is the funniest thing we've ever seen. I got smacked on the backside and it's really funny. If you don't believe me, imagine his friends laughing like that while he was like visibly, maybe with a visibly broken lead and blood everywhere and bits of bone and, and begging for help. It would be actually unwatchable. What we enjoy about watching this kind of video is we're watching the laughter work. So I think really... One of the things that's funny about laughter, in science, we tend to ignore it. There's so much less work on laughter than just about any other emotion I can think of. And we don't really value it. We don't think this stuff matters. Historically, it's like a silly behavior. It's a childlike behavior. But actually, laughter is funny and laughter really matters. Uh, laughter, the points in your day when you laugh and the people with whom you laugh are probably some of the most important points in your day. 
And it's really worth listening to that laughter and valuing it. In fact, if anything, laughter is funny and we should take it a lot more seriously. Thank you. So there's a question. Thank you for listening to my talk. Uh, Kayan Ruan has a question. Dear Professor Scott, what are the practical advice from your research that you can give to the global community going through the current crisis? Well, I think one thing that I've built into my day since we've been in lockdown is exactly for this reason that laughter matters. It's not the silly points in your day. The most important points in your day are when you are having an opportunity to share laughter with the people that you want to laugh with. So in fact, we I'm quite strategic about this. We Every day at six o'clock in the evening, we sit down as a family and we watch something or listen to something that will make us laugh. We will find a reason to laugh and we find a reason to share that laughter with each other. And it's difficult, it's stressful, the world is in turmoil. There's lots of stuff we can't do, but we can make sure that we are getting at least the opportunity to make sure there are definitely occasions in our day when we get to share this with the people that we love. And a piece of practical information, it is almost as good to have a face-to-face -face conversation over a computer network of some kind as it is to be face-to-face -face with that person in the room. It has the same effect on your laughter. So even if you can't be with people, in the room, you can be with them and you'll find yourself laughing almost as much, if not as much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon!